this is highly provocative. I would argue this is essentially the dynamic which leads to the creation of a new polity called the United States of America. So uh, there's a, a group called the Paxton Boys in Pennsylvania. They uh, are appalled by the Royal Proclamation of 1763. You can imagine you know, the, 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 the urge to move west to incorporate new lands. Um, and uh, so the Paxton Boys go in and seek out a, a Moravian Indian mission, pacifist Indians, and they massacre several dozen uh, Moravian Indians uh, and basically express their, um, their um, anger at British imperial policy. And uh, the Paxton Boys will go on to play important roles in the Continental Congress. Of course, a British general by the name of George Washington, he's a big land speculator. Uh, this Royal Proclamation preempts many of the plans that he had or Benjamin Franklin or others had to, to uh, do what is the main uh, way to make money in, in the Western Hemisphere, you know, trans transforming land into private property and then the, the real estate values go up. What, what is the value of Bridge, uh, let alone downtown Winnipeg, let alone downtown Toronto, let alone and on and on and on. Like it's 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 no secret that this is the way you make money in this society. Uh, the 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 uh, bringing of new land into the land market and then the increase in prices. Uh, this is the way fortunes are made. Here's another rendition of the expansion of Quebec in 1774. So now Quebec is expanded into this territory. So I would argue that this territory in here is really, uh, this is the contested territory. This is the territory of the land of the bowl with one spoon. Because this, this was you know, part of Quebec. It's historically been part of Canada. Um, here's a picture of... Uh, After 1783, the uh, line is put on the map. Diplomats in Europe make this the line between British North America and uh, the new polity called the United States of America. But the land uh, north of the Ohio River this, this had been part of Canada, and it actually had been uh, promised to Indian people through treaty, through the Royal Proclamation of 1763. Then there was an adjustment of the borderline in 1768 at Fort Stanwix. So this is the contested territory. This is, uh, and the United States invent this territory. The U.S. government is something called the Northwest Territory, and in the Northwest Ordinance, essentially the central government of the United States takes over the power to do Western expansion. Now, what was to have prevented, say, Virginia from just keeping expanding westward or Pennsylvania from expanding westward uh, and keeping the power vested in the existing states? Uh, the decision to allow the central government to take over the process of Western expansion and that meant essentially the, 
power to make war on Indians or to make treaties with Indians and to transform the Indian country into states. Uh, and then we will see you know, Canada duplicate this, that all the Hudson's Bay Company territories, like right here, was the Northwest Territory after 1869, 1870. So this is, in a, in a sense, the Northwest Territory becomes like a colony of federal power. And the governor of the Northwest Territory, for instance, William Henry Harris, he was quite proud of the fact he could purchase Indian land for two cents an acre and flip it around and sell it for two dollars an acre. And this was largely done through divide and conquer. It was also done by a very cynical system of bribery where you do a public deal where everybody can see it, but then you take the leader aside, you pay them off, maybe you find some weakness that they have, some addictions they have. It's a very cynical business how you do colonialism and how you go about uh, undermining the leadership and trying to pull the leadership to your side. So um, this is the genesis of the War of 1812, that a part of the British government buy into the concept, why don't we help the tribes, the indigenous peoples, to create a place called Indiana, Aboriginal Indiana, so there was a British policy to create a buffer state, to put a west, westward border on the, um, on, on, on the United States and to use the Indians as a kind of buffer between British North America and the United States. And uh, here's another rendition of this. The... Chamber of Commerce of um, Quebec and Montreal, and this is in the War of 1812, in the days of the fur trade. Uh, this is the border that the, these Canadian fur trade entrepreneurs proposed, that the United States be held to this border, and that the Indian country of Canada uh, be all the rest of the territory. And... Um, it's, uh, I've got uh, a quote underneath here. I can read from some of that. The Canadian merchants argue that the Indians are the true prop proprietors of the territory. Their aboriginal rights, having never been acquired to us, could not be transferred to the others without manifest injustice. So basically it's saying, how did the British Empire, where did the British Empire get the right to transfer what became the Northwest Territories to the United States? They never really, the British never really had that good a claim to the territory in the first place. Uh, the injustice uh, was greatly aggravated by the consideration that those Aboriginal nations had been our faithful allies during the American Rebellion, now called Revolution, and yet no stipulation was made in their favor. The boundary necessary for the protection of Indian rights and the security of the Canadas. So that phrase to me is a very powerful phrase the protection of Indian rights and the security of the Canadas are seen to be equivalent. Of course, security, national security. This is, a, this is a big subject nowadays. So in the days of the fur trade, this was, this was the conception. And eventually the War of 1812 unfolds. And uh, 
It was largely fought by real uh, American Indian fighters from the Shawnee territories, which uh, became Kentucky. And uh, much of the uh, army, the U.S. Army in the War of 1812 were, were Kentucky. Um, um, you know, Daniel Boone is from, from that territory. Uh, now, Tecumseh was a Shawnee. This is his, this is his uh, home territory. Uh, but the Shawnee are pushed from their territory and pushed into the interior and settle around uh, this area. So Tecumseh's vision is uh, he, he sees the geopolitical possibilities. His brother was a religious zealot. His brother was a prophet. He had visions. He went in and spoke in tongues. Um, people came from far and wide to see this phenomena of this uh, Indian man who would seemingly be moved by the Great Spirit and would, would make these uh, uh, very powerful orations. It was a um, you know, very evangelical, extremist kind of religion. Um, and yet the brother of the prophet, Tecumseh, gave this whole movement a geopolitical uh, thrust and you know, I, I can't help but see this in the Islamic world, where colonization is happening. There is a there is a, a religious zealotry to the response to it, but then it takes uh, a kind of pragmatic mind to turn that that religious zeal, which can unify people and draw people together, and give it a, a geopolitical thrust. So that's um, uh, Tecumseh. Uh, that's Tecumseh's genesis. And of course, with the outbreak of the War of 1812, it became advantageous for the British to back him up, to encourage Tecumseh to, uh, to push forward this confederacy of Indian nations to create a new polity of, of a confederacy of Indian nations within the British Empire. And... Uh, of course, this is, this is uh, Tecumseh, who was actually a brigadier general in the British Army. He was recognized as a brigadier general in the British Army. And this Confederacy of Indian Nations, in fact, uh, did defend Canada. They never achieved their aim. Tecumseh was murdered in 1813 in battle by uh, Johnson, somebody who came, became vice president of the United States. But... Uh, uh, he was, you know, he's widely recognized as uh, the, um, you know, great powerful orator, a great strategist, uh, and this is by far the most serious uh, check on the U.S. Western expansion, the rise of the Indian Confederacy, uh, the mobilization and militarization of the Indian Confederacy at a time when the British regulars were tied down in Europe. In the Napoleonic Wars, and the War of 1812 is, in a way, an extension of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so, um, in fact, Napoleonic Wars. <coughs> Here's a map of uh, United States in 1803. Napoleon sells the United States, Louisiana. And Louisiana is nothing like it was, like it is now in 1803. 
it, it, it's a huge part of North America. And of course, the reason that uh, this happened, what led up to it, was because of the slave revolt in San Domingo, led by Toussaint Louverture, uh, when this appeared that uh, it was going to be successful, that France was going to lose its base, this was the intermediate point for ships traveling between New Orleans and, uh, and, uh, and uh, France, uh, what became Haiti. So, so in a sense, uh, Napoleon turns to his ally. Uh, he turns to Thomas Jefferson, who is a slave owner, and Napoleon, although he's talking the rhetoric of the French Revolution, in fact, he is for the preservation of slavery. And uh, so the two of them have lots in common. And they transfer Louisiana from France to the United States. So here's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. The, the, civil, the people who see themselves as the civilized na nations or the, the advanced people passing a great chunk of the planet from one party to another without any reference at all to the indigenous people. The assumption being they're uncivilized, they're not, they're not, they don't merit, they're not qualified to, to make the highest form of international law. And uh, so this is a, an interesting map if we go to the map. Uh, of course, uh, what becomes Texas breaks away from Mexico, becomes independent, and then joins the Union of the United States of America in 1845. Much of uh, the United States as presently constituted is uh, formerly Mexico, which is formerly part of the Spanish Empire. So, you know, here's Canada, French Catholic mestizo kind of uh, society. Here's Mexico mestizo kind of, Catholic mestizo kind of society. So, you know, much, much of uh, the United States is acquired from prior colonization. And uh, uh, so, so this is the background to um, what I want to talk about, which uh, maybe you read it in, the, uh, in your preparation in the chronology. Here's the way I put it in the chronology. And perhaps I can, it will make more sense now. So I'm, I'm calling this section, so when I, in the chronology, when I write a, an essay which I think is sort of substantial, I give it a title. And as I'm, as I'm giving it a title, I'm thinking of Google and I'm thinking of, you know, keywords and, and uh, uh, you know, I'm starting to realize that uh, once we go down this road of digitalization and thinking about publishing on websites, uh, it changes literature. It changes the way you think about literature. Um, it, uh, so 1803 to present. Okay, Aboriginal dominion and international law at issue in uh, the Haiti slave revolt, the War of 1812, and the Trail of Tears, 1803 to present. Eight, 1803 to present. The death of Toussaint Louverture in France in 1803 and of Tecumseh in Canada in 1813 constitutes a dual setback in the liberal process of widening the franchise of constituencies eligible to participate in the making of international law. 
Before his demise in a French jail, Toussaint led the world's largest slave revolt in the rich French sugar colony of San Domingo. San Domingo was known as the richest colony in, in the world. The combination of sugarcane and slavery produced enormous fortunes. In fact, uh, Canada, fur trade Canada, was seen as a very marginal and economically insignificant when it came to comparisons with these, um, with these uh, sugar islands in the Caribbean. It, uh, so San Domingo became the Republic of Haiti in 1804. And it's interesting that Haiti is actually the Aboriginal name, the Indian's name for the island. And I think it's uh, probably uppermost in people's minds that the slaves would have married into the Indians, that the slaves would in fact have seen themselves as, to some extent rooted in the indigenous societies of, of, uh, of islands which uh, you would now have difficulty identifying any distinct Indian population. Uh, both Tecumseh and Toussaint were at the moment of their extermination on the verge of gaining access for their oppressed non-white constituencies to representation at the high tables of global diplomacy where international treaties are negotiated. And if you haven't picked it up by now, I see you know, a central theme of this course, this program, the whole reason for studying something called globalization studies is you know, we don't really have international law. We don't have a rule of law when it comes to global relationships. We've been able to think through the rights of human beings and such within within national polities, but how do we extend this to, to a global conception of law? And obviously uh, the need to uh, get beyond this sort of subhumans and humans, the way international law is structured, who can make treaties? You know, why can Portugal make a, make a treaty but the Blackfoot not make an international treaty? What's the difference? Who says what the difference is? Both Tecumseh and Toussaint were at the moment of their extermination on the verge of gaining access for their oppressed non-white constituencies to representation at the high tables of global diplomacy where international treaties are negotiated. Both Toussaint and Tecumseh are, were so talented and so highly esteemed by their own people that there's no question they would have provided credible representation in the international community for their large and important national polities. At the privileged tables of imperial treaty making, large pieces of the earth are regularly carved up and passed out as dependencies and subject colonies through deals conducted among small number of the delegations present. So a few parts of the world escaped this. China kind of escaped it, but China was in a sense colonized too. China was uh, humiliated too and Mao Zedong made a, gave a lot of pride to the people for identifying this and pushing back, although Mao Zedong did it absorb a kind of Western influence, the influence of Marxism, of, of communism. And, and that's one thing I notice in your papers. I, I think communism and what Karl Marx represents is very much part of the Western tradition. You know, the Nazism, communism, uh, liberalism, uh, you know, the Western tradition is, is complex. I would like to embrace the Western tradition. I would like to present this analysis as growing out of the West. Myself as, a, as giving voice to influences that are rooted legitimately in the West. I don't want to think of myself as some aberration that I don't want to give in to the idea that George Bush represents the spirit of, of Western civilization. It's, you know, in my, to my thinking, he, he's violating much of the 
from the, the essential uh, and most um, noble and, um, and decent part of the Western heritage, which is complex. So uh, again and again, indigenous peoples in the Americas, Africa, Asia, and South Pacific <clears throat> discover that jurisdiction over their own persons and over their aboriginal lands beneath their own feet has been claimed by foreign sovereigns without their consent. Again and again, these titles and rights are transferred from non, one non-aboriginal sovereign to another without consulting indigenous peoples or obtaining their consent. Matthew Kuhncom in the James Bay, among the James Bay Cree, he was very outspoken saying, don't transfer our lands from Canada to Quebec, to an independent Quebec, as if we're just trees or, or deer. Um, uh, this has happened again and again to us and we're not going to let it happen, continue to happen. The mission of Tucson, Tecumseh, in their rise to prominence is to assert in international venues the sovereign identity of their peoples. Who can claim sovereignty? What is it? Where does it exist? Who, who gets it? Who doesn't get it? Who decides? By doing so, they would have brought the practice of international law into some modicum of conformity with the higher ideals of the European Enlightenment as expressed, for instance, in the best of the egalitarian rhetoric of the French or American revolutions. The military conflict between Great Britain and the United States between 1812 and 1814 can be conceived of as a North American extension of the Napoleonic Wars. The war is sparked by trade issues and by the desire of some in the United States to annex Canada and thereby break the menacing military alliance between the Crown and Aboriginal peoples. And it's very clear, uh, you could read many, many citations in my book where in the era of the War of 1812, the major complaint is that the British are siding with the Indians. The British are arming the Indians. British North America gives a place where the Indians can uh, fuel themselves, rebuild themselves to oppose the Western expansion of the United States. But of course, the United States see this as a manifest destiny. They don't really see it as an infringement into other people's territory. It's simply taking what is rightfully theirs. Uh, this alliance had developed in the context of British Imperial Canada's uh, busy fur trade economy, a broad and united Indian Confederacy led by the gifted Shawnee strategist Tecumseh seeks to use the War of 1812 to secure an Aboriginal dominion north of the Ohio River with the backing of the British Imperial Government. The British Government backs Tecumseh's plan of creating this Aboriginal polity with the view it could form an effective buffer state between the New Republic and the frontier province of Upper Canada in what remains of British North America. The plan suffers a major reversal when Tecumseh is killed in battle in the Battle of the Thames near Moravian Town Indian Mission in Upper Canada in 1813. Although the Indian Confederacy did not secure its major objective, namely the formation of an Aboriginal Dominion, which would have probably been called Indiana, protected by the power of the British Empire, its formidable fighting forces successfully defend most of Canada from a U.S. takeover. And so that's a huge aspect of this country's geopolitical personality. Not only were the Indians not defended, it's the Indians who basically defended Canada against the major effort to take it over, which occurred in, in the War of 1812. So not only are Indians not a conquered people, they are the group who have, in a way, the strongest claim to saying, well, we actually defended Canada when it could have been annexed by the United States. And I don't think the, the uh, agenda of annexing Canada has ever really been 
abandoned by, by the United States. Uh, the Treaty of Ghent in North America, uh, Ghent in 1814, uh, returns North America to its pre-1812 borders. As Tecumseh repeatedly predicted, the U.S. government did eventually respond to its war with the Indian Confederacy by implementing a massive scheme of Indian deportation to an Indian territory west of the Mississippi River. And what's now Oklahoma used to be Indian territory. Many of the uh, so-called five civilized tribes went there. The Cherokee marched out at gunpoint uh, in, the, in the Trail of Tears. Interestingly, many of the uh, uh, Cherokee and Creeks and others had black slaves who they brought with them on the Trail of Tears. And then, of course, what would be the status of these black slaves after slavery was abolished in the Civil, in the civil War? Many of the five civilized tribes sided with the South, with the slave-owning South in the Civil War. But that's another story. The central drama of that forced deportation, which in some instances is executed at the end of US government guns, is known as the Trail of Tears. The Trail of Tears proves to be the most dramatic episode in the Indian removal policy initiated by the federal government led by President Andrew Jackson. In the 1830s, Jackson and his agents defied a ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court to push ahead a scheme aimed at removing almost all Indians residing east of the Mississippi to a designated Indian territory in the region of present-day Oklahoma and Kansas. The implementation of Indian removal policy in the United States is indicative of the consequences of the denial of Aboriginal representation in those venues where international law of sovereign nations is transacted. The exclusion of most non-white polities from the high tables of international diplomacy continued until the early years of the 20th century. Then a shift occurred when Japan was finally accepted as a great imperial power capable of legitimately governing its own colonies, uh, especially in Formosa or Taiwan, Manchuria and Korea. Nevertheless, literally thousands of distinct indigenous people such as the Maori of New Zealand the Haida of Canada or the Agoni of Nigeria do not receive direct representation in venues such as the United Nations uh, or the World Trade Organization where international law is made, arbitrated, and sometimes enforced. So that's my uh, little pitch that in this story of Tecumseh, in this story of Toussaint Louverture, is the reality that uh, the planet was doled out in the course of imperialism, that uh, most of Africa was doled out between the Portuguese, between the Germans, between the British, between the French. And uh, that continues to uh, characterize um, the situation, although there was a, a decolonization movement. Uh, Vietnam was a French colony. When, Vietnam, when the French withdrew, and it seems Vietnam might become subject to uh, communist uh, infiltration, communism from China. Uh, Ho Chi Minh uh, was an indigenous freedom fighter, uh, but he needed some support, so he could get that support from China. The United States took the position, if we allow this decolonization to occur in Vietnam, Vietnam will become communist, that will become a domino, then it will be Malaysia, then it will be Singapore, then it will be Indonesia, then it might even be Australia. I mean, that, that was the domino theory. So um, I, I want to um, 
end with, um, I'm going to get to it. I'm just going to do it. Um, this uh, tension between opposites. You know, we started, well, what is the West? How do we understand the West? Well, the West has uh, this uh, impetus that is secular, that is scientific. If the Enlightenment of the 18th century uh, represents a culmination of a long period of pushing back the church, pushing back uh, ecclesiastical authorities, and uh, saying we're going to assess how the world is constructed using evidence, using empirical proof, using our rational minds. And we're not going to be preoccupied if God is somehow controlling this, although it's, you know, some were able to incorporate a sense of uh, religious involvement in, in, in the universe. Uh, but some were very adamant that, that this, this is a backward thing. Um, the United States is, you know, presently, I think, caught between its roots as a Reformation country, as a country uh, where Protestant, uh, Protestant religion and a very evangelical strain of it continues to have a strong um, hold on the imagination of many uh, in, at this moment uh, of the President of the United States himself, George W. Bush, who is a very committed, overtly uh, proud Christian. And, uh, and yet, you know, the United States obviously was able to achieve uh, great advances in science and technology and industry by being a, a country devoted to uh, understanding the way the, the world is constructed in the universe by using science, by applying science to technology. And so here we are in, in a university where, where, which I think is, uh, should be at the heart of this uh, rational enlightenment approach where we say, you know, we, we're going to be hard-nosed. We're not going to accept things on authority. We're going to uh, look at the evidence as best we can. And so uh, I want to talk a little bit about 9-11 uh, and uh, how um, it seems to me that there is just such huge issues that aren't being discussed and that any um, respect for Enlightenment traditions and, and, and the um, burden of evidence you know, requires that there be some discussion because the official story of things just doesn't add up. The official story that we get uh, from our um, governments, uh, from uh, elites, is uh, not making, uh, it's not telling the whole story. And, and uh, if I could um, start with, say, Afghanistan, the Canadian Army is in Afghanistan. The Canadian government has a big commitment to support what's going on in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is in a way uh, at the heart of this legacy from uh, the Cold War. Um, the uh, Afghanistan government was a puppet regime of the Soviet government based in Moscow. So uh, the U.S. government did what it was doing throughout the Cold War. Essentially, um, the U.S. government built up religious uh, groups throughout the world, religion of any kind, 
was seen as a useful way to counter Marxism, communism, because communism is atheist in its most classical sense. Uh, Marx was very outspoken that uh, religion is the opiate of the people. Religion is the way the working class, the downtrodden, are manipulated to accept their position. Religion is, is uh, exploited uh, by elites to keep down those who are oppressed. Marx was very clear about that. So the United States, in countering communism, any kind of religion that they could build up, they did so. And so the... Uh, um, let me write it. Al-Qaeda. What is that? You know, we hear they're the bad guys. They did 9-11. Well, Afghanistan was uh, seen as the Soviets' Vietnam. The, the Soviets were um, entrenched in Afghanistan. They, they had a puppet regime, a puppet communist regime. Osama bin Laden and others were encouraged to recruit extremist Islamic freedom fighters, or as they would see themselves, jihadists, to go and, uh, from Pakistan to build up uh, an organization, uh, a religious organization, a militarized organization to overthrow the puppet regime in, the Soviet, in Afghanistan. And so when we talk about what is al-Qaeda, it's got to be addressed that al-Qaeda is largely a creation of the United States. Osama bin Laden was working for the United States. Osama bin Laden is a U.S. agent. Now, uh, um, let me document this a little bit before I get to 9-11. I've got uh, 10 minutes. <coughs> now, Pakistan is where a lot of this uh, history. If you, if you want to understand what's going on, look at Pakistan now. Pakistan, like Israel, is one of the... Pakistan and Israel are, are the two countries that were created uh, specifically as religious uh, polities. So after World War II, with the huge uh, injustice involved in the Holocaust and all that led up to it, there was a sense of guilt, a sense of need for atonement. So the creation of Israel, as specifically as a Jewish homeland, specifically as a place where Jews could have citizenship in their own country, uh, that was created. And then a divide-and-conquer type approach, which the British Empire had conducted in India, led them to kind of be caught. Uh, maybe they were continuing this divide-and-conquer approach. They sided with the Muslim League to some extent with Jinnah. Uh, Jinnah was head of the Muslim League. So India was partitioned and Pakistan was created specifically as a homeland for Muslim people, for Islamic people. And so Pakistan has that personality that it's, it's, it's in a sense a country that uh, is based on its religious orientation. Any other country like India, um, any country that says we're going to become a theocracy runs into a lot of hostility in the international community. 
Uh, and you know, this goes against all our liberal notions that states have to uh, incorporate pluralism and multiculturalism. Um, they can't take sides with one religion over another. Um, um, so um, let's jump into Pakistan, uh, which is uh, run by a U.S. puppet, Musharraf, Musharraf, um, a general, um, and uh, so it. it I'm reading uh, from uh, David Van Prague's article in the Globe and Mail of September 25th, 2003. And uh, the article's called Ottawa's Unwelcome Visitor when uh, Musharraf was in uh, Ottawa. So Pakistan's army through its inter-services intelligence branch. So ISI is the really an extension of the uh, CIA. ISI built up Al-Qaeda, built up uh, later the Taliban, as we'll see. Um, ISI is probably protecting Osama bin Laden to this moment. ISI is closely connected to the U.S. government through, through the CIA. Uh, in recent weeks, it's become clear that ISI has revived a second terrorist front in a way that almost certainly will lead to casualties among Canadian troops in Afghanistan. The Soviet uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan at the end of the 1980s, the Pakistani mil military created, armed, and commanded the benighted Islamic extremists called the Taliban, who took over most of Afghanistan by 1996. So ISI created... Taliban. Taliban is, is, are the camps where Osama bin Laden uh, was, was working and, and training his jihadists. Under the Taliban, the country became the headquarters of Al-Qaeda, the international terrorist movement headed by Osama bin Laden. Uh, Taliban and uh, I'm jumping down here. <clears throat> oh, I'll, I'll read them paragraph in between. With September 11, 2001, terrorist attacks on the United States, Pakistan had little choice but to declare itself an ally of Washington, especially because India had immediately made clear that the New Delhi was Washington's strategic ally. But ISI support, uh, support of the Taliban um, continued. In all likelihood, Osama bin Laden lives under ISI protection on one side or other of the border, that is the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. A new phase of the struggle for Afghanistan has started, however, with the attacks by well-armed organized Taliban units of as many as several hundred men. So our Canadian army, our brothers, our children, our relatives are going over to fight the Taliban. The Taliban who were created by the military arm of the Pakistani government with the help of the CIA. The, the ISI, it said here, protect and defend Osama bin Laden. You don't think you could pick up Osama bin Laden in 40 minutes if you wanted to? He's the most famous man in the world. You think he can sneak around and wear disguises and things? Uh, what, what would happen if Osama bin Laden was picked up? I mean, suddenly the U.S. would have to deal with the fact that he is a hero. Osama bin Laden is one of the most popular figures in the world for, for many, many people. 
Osama bin Laden, uh, you know, the, this idea, as, as Mike Schur, who was watching Osama bin Laden, he says, why the West is losing the war on terror, this imperial hubris book. If we can go to the docu-camera. Uh, yeah, this is uh, written by the fellow who was in charge of watching Osama bin Laden, who he acknowledges is a very wise, you know, he's very astute. He's a good politician. And uh, this idea, well, why are they attacking us? Why are they attacking us? Well, they hate our freedom, you know, George. They just hate our freedom. They just look at us and they say, those Westerners are so free, we hate them. We're going to bomb them. No, they hate, they hate what creates U.S.-based unlimited support for Israel. They hate the fact that they're governed by puppet regimes, which Washington backs up to oppress their own people, because they keep the flow of oil going. Uh, Osama bin Laden's looking at his own cousins in, in Saudi Arabia who are propped up by US oil interests, and it disgusts him. Um, so it's 2003. Now, um, if we go to uh, an article in uh, September 26, 2003 in the Globe and Mail, Musharraf is asked about this. Uh, so Musharraf is playing a double game. He's, a, he's the U.S.'s friend, but uh, he's in a, in a country where Islamic extremism has a, a powerful political base. And, uh, and so he's asked, uh, well, what about your, the accusation that ISI created the Taliban, that ISI is protecting Osama bin, bin Laden? And he says, let it be clear to everyone. If I'm to blame, George Bush is equally to blame. If ISI is to blame, then CIA is equally to blame. CIA created ISI. And uh, um, if I had more time, of course, what we get is suddenly the enemy changed. Suddenly the en enemy shifted. And I suppose there's an Arab guy, and Osama bin Laden's an Arab guy, and Sam Hussein is an Arab guy, and let's just put in another, another enemy. Uh, as we know now, this claim that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction was based on lying. It wasn't just based on false intelligence. It was based on lying. And Tony Blair's dealing with it. Uh, little by little, it's, it's, it's been coming out. Now, if, if they could lie about that, why couldn't the, the bigger lie go back to 9-11? When a crime is committed, what you usually do in a, when a crime is committed is you say, who are the beneficiaries of that crime? Who had the most to gain from that crime? And of course, 9-11 uh, led to a much more powerful position for the military-industrial complex. The military-industrial complex, which after the Cold War was having a hard time to justify putting all of this wealth and treasure into, into um, into military spending. Uh, so the new Pearl Harbor, this is a fairly, uh, I don't think this is a lunatic's writing. It's uh, David Ray Griffin. And he basically looks at um, the different uh, works that have been coming out questioning various aspects of 9-11. And, uh, well, I'm over, over time. Uh, give me uh, 
four minutes if I see if I can do this. So, so basically, he is simply restating uh, what he's read in a in a variety of sources, and these being the primary sources. And uh, there are things about 9/11 that just can't sustain any scrutiny. The third tower fell. There was a third tower that fell that wasn't hit by an airplane where Giuliani had some kind of headquarters. Why did it fall? Towers can't, of that magnitude don't fall from, that, that type of accident doesn't create the level of heat. There's never been in recorded uh, history uh, a building that fell from the metal um, being, um, being melted. Uh, the third tower, uh, what about uh, the uh, coming in of the planes when they change course? There is automatic things in place that, that planes are scrambled. There, there is emergency measures for these situations. Those didn't kick in. Why didn't they kick in? The, there has to be some explanation. Has there been a real study of this? Well, who did the study? Well, the commission that looked at it drew its mandate from the White House. The White House would allow them to see certain things or not. Um, and uh, the uh, Pentagon, uh, I mean, I, I remember those pictures. Um, the concept that a big, huge jetliner went into it. Where, where's the jetliner? Where, where was it? Where, um, the, it's a pretty compelling case as you go through that it was a missile. Uh, a thin missile that that penetrated that. Um, so this is, you know, I have a PhD. I can read. I'm not, you know, I, I just read. It's not like I'm making some kind of uh, really outlandish theory. I'm just reading what what is being presented to me, and I'm saying I agree that the that the story we have about 9/11 doesn't. Doesn't it, it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Uh, you remember the story of Kennedy. I mean, how many people believe that John F. Kennedy was shot by one guy who just felt so strongly that he was a bad guy that he went to all, he figured it all out, and then that one guy just uh, figured it out and, 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 and killed him. And oh, by the way, the one guy happened to be in Cuba and he happened to be in the Soviet Union. Oh yeah, and a member of the mafia just felt so strongly about it that he went out and shot him right after. I mean, I, I think there's a consensus developed over time that the story we got about the single deranged individual killing the President of the United States just doesn't hold up. But it took a long time, and there was a long time where individuals who talked about it were treated as, as kind of weird and, and of dubious um, integrity. Uh, I don't think it's going to take that long for this case to, uh, uh, but you know, I, I, I'm simply reflecting on the fact that we live in the West. Uh, we're we have freedom of speech. We pursue questions. Why can't we have discussions on such a basic, central thing? You know, what is the Taliban? Where did it come from? Where did Al Qaeda come from? What really happened on 9/11? And by the way, here we are in the in the richest jurisdiction in North America, which has so much potential, and why why isn't there a framework to have a discussion to shake ourselves, you know, to find our fellow Albertans and say, how could we use this either for ourselves as Albertans or or for um, some vision of Canada 
or some global vision, but to simply say that we're just, of course we accept that it's just to be part of the military industrial complex and that's the, the, the rational way to do it. We're not going to have a discussion. That doesn't make sense. Western Hemisphere, the United States of America, America, the Americas, Canada, Alberta, where is here orienting ourselves to globalization? That's been the topic.